Hey, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. I want you to go to chapter 16, so about halfway through the Gospel, and we're going to start with verse 19. This is a two-act play. The first act is over very quickly, and it involves two characters. So starting at verse 19, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. And at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. All right, a rich man and a beggar. And the context of the story is it's one in three parables that Jesus has just delivered. The first is about a prodigal who wastes the resources of his father. The second is of a steward who wastes the resources of his master. And as we're soon to see, the third one is the story of a rich man who wastes his own resources. So let's start with the rich man. And one of the great things about parables is that there is often some really comic twists in them. And there's a little bit of comedy uh, buried here in the text. But first of all, what do we know about the rich man? The rich man was very rich. He wore purple linen. Now, purple in those days was a very, very expensive color and thus very, very expensive. So he was wearing sort of wedding gown type quality kit every day of his life. But not only that, underneath his gear, and this is where the comedy lies, is some very fine linen. In other words, he had top-class knickers. So this was a well-dressed man with top-class knickers and a beautiful outer kit, which he wore every day. And further, he lived in luxury every day. Now straight away, something is wrong. Because he's a Jew, living in luxury every day. Now, as a Jew, he should have been observing the Sabbath. So at least for one of those days, he shouldn't have been living in luxury. Yet he was. And the impact of that is more significant because to enable him to live in luxury every day, he had to have a whole raft of servants to prepare the food, to serve him, and so on. Thus, his servants were also not being allowed to live the Sabbath, which for a Jew was profoundly offensive to each other, and to God. So here is a man so self-indulgent, so uncaring, that not only for himself, but for his whole household and servants, he lives this extraordinary life of luxury. Outside his gate, laid every day, is a beggar, covered in sores, delivered by his friends, named Lazarus. Now, Lazarus is a very interesting character, because he is the only person named in all the parables. So think about the parables. We don't know the name of the Good Samaritan. It could have been Reuben. It could have been Jeffrey. It could have been Phil. It could have been Graham. We don't know the name of the prodigal. Yet in this particular parable, Jesus quite deliberately names the beggar man. Now what comes more interesting is the beggar man never speaks in the parable. Later on, Father Abraham is going to speak for him yet he is the one that's named. So what does that signify? Now here is the irony, or the twist in the story. Lazarus means the one looked after by God. 
the one looked after by God. Yet look at the circumstances. He is the beggar man. He is the one outside the gate of the rich man, who seemingly is really the one being looked after by God. And particularly in Jewish society, wealth was a sign of God's blessing. So here is the blessed one living in wealth, and here's the unblessed man with the extraordinary inapt name, the one looked after by God, a beggar man so unable to look after himself that he is delivered every day to the gate, so unwell that he's covered in sores, yet named in the parable. Seemingly so unwell that even the dogs come and lick his sores. But here we need to do a bit of deep diving. Because what in fact is going on here is something quite different to how it presents. Because those of you who have um, dogs, uh, we've got a, my family and I have got a couple of dogs. One's called Skoda, which was our first car. One's called Mercedes, which now that I work for World Vision, we will never own. So Skoda and Mercedes. <laughs> Cat's called Ginger and Nuts, so you can imagine what their colour is. And uh, Skoda and Mercedes, when they uh, have a sore, they lick it. And why they do that is because within the saliva of a dog are healing properties. So even though this translates seemingly into the English as, and even the dogs lick the sores, what is fascinating is that the rich man who had everything showed no compassion, compassion to the beggar man at his door, yet the dogs of the street did. And they came and licked his sores to bring him some healing from the agony that he was in. So straight away, a twist in the story. Now the beggar man is so hungry that he longs for even the crumbs from the rich man's table. What does that mean? What that means is that in Jewish society, you didn't have knives and forks. What you did is you ate with your hands. But if you were particularly wealthy, what you'd do at the end of the meal is you wiped your hands on bread crumbs, on bread, on crusts of bread. And then those bread was thrown to your guard dogs. So what Lazarus is hoping for is just some of those crumbs from the table that are otherwise thrown to the guard dogs, would be thrown to me. Such is the predicament that Lazarus faces. But it's deeper than just a physical need for food. It's deeply psychological. And this is why poverty is so cruel and so never can be romanticized. Because what is going on here is both a physical torture and a psychological torture. He's living in a community very small, in the sense of physically small. So no doubt, camped outside the gate of the rich man, he was but a few meters away from the feasting table. So he would have seen the wealthy in their purple and their fine linen going in. He would no doubt have heard the conversations. He'd have heard the food being eaten. He'd have heard just this extraordinary luxury and and awfulness of all this just food being thrown away. He would have been within meters of having his own needs met, separated physically by a gate and psychologically by man who did not see. Act 1. Poor man named Lazarus, the one whom God provides, and a rich man unnamed, in fine linen, and extremely good underpants. So, let's go to the second scene. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was hurried into hell where he was in torment. And he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So scene two, quite an abrupt change. What happens is that Lazarus dies. 
can't even afford a funeral for Lazarus. He's actually carried by the angels to the bosom of Father Abraham in heaven. Quite a kind of exciting thought, really. And what happens there is Father Abraham turns on this fantastic feast where the beggar is now the honored guest. And the rich man, who everyone knows is the baddie in the story, and it doesn't get much better of him, goes down to hell, or more likely Hades. Hades was that place regarded in Jewish literature as, as the waiting room, the waiting room for God's judgment. But whatever, what's happening here is the rich man can see Father Abraham in heaven, and he can see Lazarus. And what is particularly interesting is what happens next. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his fingers in the water and cool my tongue because I'm agony in this fire. Send Lazarus. Now, what's happening here? What's happening here is, interestingly enough, the rich man who never recognized Lazarus on earth recognizes him in heaven. Not only does he recognize him, he knows him by name. Interesting. But what does he do? He doesn't call out to Lazarus and say, Lazarus, I'm really, really sorry for ignoring you. You've got to understand I was really busy and all these kind of things. Please, please forgive me and please you know, come and give me a hand. None of that. He completely again ignores Lazarus, though he can see him, and instead addresses all his comments to Father Abraham. And he plays the race card. He says, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Remember me. Which basically is, remember the Jewish connection. And in Jewish society, when you're in trouble, you always appeal to the patriarch, in the hope that the patriarch would look after you. So he appeals to Abraham, and he says, send Lazarus, your servant, effectively the man at my door, to dip his finger in the water and come and comfort me. Now, this would have outraged the crowd listening to it. They would have expected a fulsome apology from the rich man. There is none of that. So let's see what happens next. Does Lazarus respond? Seemingly not. Totally silent. But Abraham most certainly does. But Abraham replied, Son, which is quite an affectionate greeting, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us is a great chasm, has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone come over from there to us. All right? So what he's saying is two things. First of all, remember this, rich man. All the things that were given to you were given by God. But now there's this great chasm between where you are and where Lazarus, the man you've recognized and named, and I, Father Abraham, are. Now what's interesting in here is though Lazarus says nothing in the parable, there's a suggestion, a hint, that a conversation is going on with Father Abraham. Because there's a little phrase here when he says, even for those of us who want to come from here to there can't. So you can imagine Lazarus, this quiet man, saying to Father Abraham, look around you, mate. Look at all this food. Look at all this water. Surely I could go and comfort this man who I know. It says something of the response and the godliness of Lazarus. If you like the New Testament Job, 
But Father Abraham says there is such a chasm between heaven and Hades that even if you wanted to, it would not be possible. Now, the rich man doesn't give up, so we're still in the second act. And he has another go at it. He says, well, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. So, okay, I'm stuffed, but what about my brothers? Send Lazarus to them. That seems a pretty reasonable response. What is the response from Father Abraham? Seemingly quite tough. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And in that, a very powerful statement is being made. He's actually saying to the rich man, you too had Moses and the prophets. And in choosing not to observe the Sabbath, in choosing not to honor God, you ignored Moses and the prophets. What point would there be in sending Lazarus to your brothers? But not to be outdone, our rich man in torment tries for a third time. And I think rather boldly points out to Abraham that he's got it wrong. And what, this is what he says. He says, no, Father Abraham, no. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. If someone goes from the dead to them, they will repent. And he said to him, if they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. They will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now, I don't know about you, but there have been moments in my um, uh, work and, and in my life where I have so wanted God to conjure up a, a miracle. You know, <laughs> when you're doing youth work and it's seemingly going wrong, or you're speaking at something, there's hardly a soul there, or you're up against it, and you think, wouldn't it be just so good if God could just do a quick zap? You know, just to kind of flex his muscles here on earth. He did it in the Bible, surely he could do it here. And that's what Father Abraham is saying, no, it ain't going to happen. Because if you know your Bible, you might know there are two Lazaruses, Lazari. The first Lazarus was actually a friend of Jesus, and he died, and he was raised from the dead. Remember that? And the second one is the beggar, different people. The interesting thing about the first one, Lazarus, was that story spread like wildfire right through the community. We know that because it's talked about in the Bible. That story made it all the way to the chief priests. Now here's the chief priest, the representative of God, seeing a miracle. He can't get much better than raising somebody from the dead. How does he respond to the first Lazarus? He determined with even greater resolve to kill Jesus. That was how they responded to the miracle. And what Father Abraham is saying, I could whip up any number of miracles, but actually it will do nothing. That ends a seemingly very simple story, a two-act play between poor man Lazarus, God will provide, rich man seemingly with everything in front of him. But what is the point of the story? It's a complex story. The essence of the point is this. The rich man on earth did not see. The rich man on earth did not see. His crime wasn't that he went outside and rang the police authorities and said, get the beggar out of my life. He's cluttering up my lovely entranceway in the garden. It wasn't that he went out there and kicked Lazarus 
There's no record of him going out and speaking to Lazarus and saying, getting out of my life, mate. I just go somewhere else. Go and talk to the authorities, social welfare. Somebody will look after you. Get away. There's no record that he set his dogs on Lazarus. He did nothing. That was his sin. That's what saw him in Hades. That's what saw Lazarus in heaven. Now we know he saw because he recognizes Lazarus and he even names Lazarus. He saw with his eyes. He did not see with his heart. Now when I look at a story like this, I ask myself, who am I in the story? And I stand convicted because I am the rich man. I am the rich man, not because of what I have, but what I do with it. By definition, I am rich. I own actually not just one car, but our family owns two cars. By owning one car, I'm straight away in the top 10% of the wealthiest people in the world. So by owning two, I'm probably in the top 5%. Most of us in that room, in this room, are in that group. It is not what we have, it's what we do with it. And that's where I stand convicted. Just last week, I was um, walking through town, and there was a guy, an increasingly common sight, um, wrapped up in a rug. He had a sort of a mangy dog beside him, and he had a little begging bowl and a little sign saying, please give me food. And his words were, please, sir, give me some coins for a feed. What was my reaction? My reaction was actually annoyance, if I'm honest. Sitting there thinking, oh, why, why did he notice me? Why didn't he call out to somebody else. It was partly annoyance to thinking, somebody should be looking after him. You know, surely there's sort of an agency that should care for these people. There's, there's social welfare benefits. He, he'd be fine if we just sort of got him connected up there. Sitting there thinking, look, even if I give you a coin, this is all going through my head. Even if I give you a coin, he'll probably drink it anyway. So that probably doesn't make much sense. But really rather wishing the encounter hadn't happened. I don't see. I see with my eyes. I don't see with my heart. And that was the crime that the rich man suffered from. So I asked myself the question, why don't I see? Why don't I see that camped outside my home here in Auckland is one billion Lazarus? One billion people desperate for food, physically damaged, psychologically damaged, living on less than $2 a day, why do I not see that? And I stand convicted. I stand convicted because in truth, I don't want to see. I am fearful of what I see. If I see it, I worry about what it might mean for me, what it might mean for my family, what it might mean for my choices, what it might mean for how I'll live the rest of my life. I'm fearful that maybe God is saying, I want you to realize that all your resources have been given by me to you, and I want you to use all of your resources in this wonderful world, including to the Lazarus who sits camped at your gate. I'm fearful of that. I'm fearful of what it will demand of myself and my family. I also don't see because I'm conditioned not to see. Now, I grew up, in a, uh, grown up in a Christian family. All my life have known Christ. Came to 
that, that point of personal experience of Jesus in my life as a, as a 15-year-old at a Youth for Christ rally. And my, my upbringing has been what you typically call evangelical Christianity. So we treasure the Bible. We treasure a personal relationship with Christ. We understand grace. It's the essence of being an evangelical. But as I grew up as a Christian, sadly, the things that I treasured actually also potentially were my undoing because I grew up very much in a privatized faith. So I understood the gospel, which includes the story of Lazarus and the rich man, essentially as a private transaction between me and my God. Or in my worst moments, me and my boyfriend on Sunday when I was singing songs to Jesus, telling him about how I felt, actually not about him, but about myself. And I realized very recently that my faith expression was largely an expression of that personal relationship, that I had privatized my faith, not turned it into a public expression. So unable to see. And since coming to World Vision, I have been struck time and time and time again as I read the Bible of how actually these issues of poverty, these issues of justice, are not an optional extra that we do in our spare time. They're absolutely at the heart of Scripture, at the heart of the Gospel. I was given this as a gift when I started at World Vision, which is called the um, Poverty and Justice Bible, put out by the Bible Society in World Vision. And what it does is it's highlighted in orange highlighters all the verses in Scripture which refer to justice or to poverty issues. What is staring about it is it is right through Scripture. It is at the essence of Scripture. But I don't see... I don't see the beggar at my door because I choose not to see, because I'm conditioned not to see, and frankly, thirdly, I'm too busy to see. My life is so full of all these wonderful things that I'm just too busy to see the beggar as I rush past to wherever I'm going. Here's the clincher, however. What does Jesus see? And the answer is very glaring. At a critical moment in the ministry of Christ, a young, extraordinarily gifted son of God, publicly anointed by the Spirit through John the Baptist, early stages of his ministry, John the Baptist in prison has a crisis of confidence, sends his disciples to Jesus and says, are you the one or should we look for someone else? Are you the one? Or should we look for someone else? And this is how Jesus responds. Tell John what you have seen and what you have heard. Tell John the blind now see, the deaf now hear, the lame now walk, those with leprosy are cured, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached. The significance of that response to John is this. Tell John what you have seen. Tell John what you have heard. And in answering that question, what Jesus is doing is he's identifying himself. He is standing with the poor. He is standing with the one billion camped at my gate that I am too busy to see. And as a follower of Christ, I am called to stand with him, with those one billion people. So when I read the story 
of the rich man and Lazarus. I too stand convicted because I see with my eyes, but not with my heart. So, how do we learn to see? My experience of seeing has been very much touched just by understanding that those one billion who live on less than two dollars a day, psychologically damaged, physically damaged, each one, as we sang before in that fantastic song by Phil, is actually made in the image of God. And God knows them even better than they know themselves. Suddenly when I see that, I suddenly realize this is a completely different transaction than the nameless beggar that I saw on the street. This is someone fashioned, known by Jesus since before he was born. So when that statistic has a name, then I start to see. What I want to do in finishing is not actually to leave you with a sense of, of um, guilt or anything like that, but rather actually talk very practically about how do we learn to see. Because that's the journey I've been on in the last couple of years since joining World Vision from my background, which was previously working in healthcare. The first one, actually, I've found really helpful is to think biblically, is to reread Scripture, but read it through the eyes of the poor. Particularly read it in terms of the injunctions that are there right from the beginning of Scripture to the end about standing up and against injustice and standing up for the poor. When we read the Bible with that sense of breadth, suddenly we see that this is not something you do as an optional extra. It is germane to being a follower of Christ. Secondly, what I've found really helpful is actually just to do stuff. Um, It might sound kind of simple, but actually by volunteering and doing things, whether it's through the church here or through your work connections or whatever, is actually you start to see. A friend of mine I was talking to just earlier on this week was telling me he's an accountant, and through a whole series of quite bizarre connections, he ended up helping out in a soup kitchen. It has totally transformed his life. And he just sent me a note yesterday saying he's, he works for PricewaterhouseCoopers. He's invited a number of senior partners from PricewaterhouseCoopers along. They came and saw what he was doing on Saturday yesterday in South Auckland, and are so motivated by that they want to do something about it. Just by actually doing something starts to enable us to see, not just with our head, but, but with our heart. The other stuff that we can do is think really carefully about how we spend our money. The reality is that we live in a consumer society, and it's incredibly hard not to be consumerist. But actually think about our money, not just in terms of the amount of money that we tithe, but actually the rest of the money. And what are the choices that we're making? And how could we make wiser choices that could be more impactful, not just for our families, but for actually the rest of the world? Where we travel, how we travel, what we do when we're on holiday, what we do during our work week, the kind of cars that we own, all those sorts of things. A good friend of mine, he's probably the wealthiest person I know, um, um, has done very well. But what he's done is he's decided to have one thing in his life which reminds him of the fact that he has so much. So that's a television set. He has a really, really, really old television set. <laughs> he was telling me about it last week. And he just has it in his living room. He knows he could buy the best television set um, <laughs> money can buy. He chooses to have an old television set to remind him of something of what he has. Now, the, point, the reason he's telling me the story was because with the announcement this week that we go digital in a couple of years' time, he's got to buy himself a new television set because his old TV set won't go digital. But you get the point. That decision to hold the car for that extra couple of years, that decision not to buy the bigger house or not to do up the kitchen, but to actually live with the current kitchen just because we can. To think about um, reading. You know, one of the things that's so inspired me is biography. I'm an avid reader. But reading stories of people who have transformed the world, scripture being a starting point, read the stories of William Wilberforce. You'll be inspired by this extraordinary rich man who captured a vision to change the world and actually did it. 
Martin Luther King, Gandhi. Think of some of the people who have been um, transformative experiences here in New Zealand. I've been so inspired by reading those stories. They give me the resolve to think, you know what? Ordinary people can actually make a difference. Living responsibly. One of the things that I really am coming increasingly conscious of is the amount of food that we buy. It's not just the food we buy, but where it comes from. Is that food sourced from a sweet shop in Taiwan? Is the factory that produces that food actually polluting the environment or not? Is it creating good employment practices for its staff? You know, we can find that out now. There are many ways of finding out whether the goods that we provide actually are helpful or not helpful to the economies they come from. Fair trade being a really good example of that. Because that way you know that the money will actually go back and benefit the lilies of this world. So that maybe sometime in her life she'll get to see the city, get to be the city girl. Um, shouting loudly. I was really impressed. You guys at Mob um, had, had the Prime Minister here. I mean, that is stunning. What a fantastic opportunity. Uh, and, you know, let's use these opportunities to share with him what's on our heart. I've worked uh, for in Parliament in, in a previous life. Politicians are very acutely attuned to the heartbeat of their communities. So if our heartbeat of our community is saying, actually, we want to do something for the lilies of this world, they will pick that up if we tell them. So speaking loudly, speaking to our politicians, speaking to our leaders, giving generously. Um, one of the things about tithing is that for many of us it can come, essentially, I've discharged my responsibility. I can now do whatever I like with the rest of the money. No, 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 no. Read scripture. That's the starting point about a conversation with God and our community about what we do with the rest of our money. Can I encourage you to pray? This is not a soft option. Reuben talked about praying for Andrew and Maxine. I've been there. I've seen it. I've seen the power of prayer. It is an extraordinary thing. Transformation happens when God is at work in his world. Through prayer, somehow or other, we liberate God to be at work in his world. Pray, pray without ceasing for those one billion. Pray for the lilies. Pray for the people at your doorstep that you know are just around the corner. And study. You know, here is the thought. Poverty is actually man-made. It is not a necessary evil of living on this planet. There is more than enough food to go around this world. There's a complex array of reasons why that doesn't happen. We could actually end global poverty. It is not a fiction, and indeed we're a long way along that path. Half the world now, put it a different way, um, if we think about children dying before they're five, from illnesses that are preventable, in other words, illnesses that wouldn't kill them in New Zealand, that number is halved from about 40,000 dying every day to 22,000 through medicines, through good distribution of services, through clean water and sanitation and so on. So we're making progress. But the point is, we need to approach this with a brain and understand what is causing poverty and how we can address it. So in terms of if you're a student, think seriously about studying these issues and think about bringing your mind and your profession to ending global poverty. So some suggestions about what we can do to not just see with our eyes, but to see with our heart so that we are seen and heard in God's world. But let me finish with one last story. I don't want to leave you with a sense of either guilt or anything else. I want to leave you with a sense of hope. Because my experience of having now spent quite a lot of time living or visiting these communities around the world, be it Africa, be it India, be it parts of Asia, is not one of despondency 
but profound hope. And let me illustrate it with yet another story. I was in Dar es Salaam, which is in Tanzania, um, at the end of quite a long trip, uh, towards the end of last year. And World Vision staff um, stay in hotels in inverted commas. Um, what that means is that you're always wondering if you're sharing a bed with bed bugs or, in fact, if you're sharing your room with lots of other people. So we're not your sort of Hilton travellers. So um, you get kind of used to that, and it's totally fine. So I rocked up. I had extremely low expectations of the hotel in Dar es Salaam that I was going to be staying in and walked into this relatively um, down-at-heel uh, hotel, was checked in by a really friendly woman who said to me, oh, you're Chris Clark, you're the man from World Vision. And at that point, I didn't fully understand the point of the story. And she said, um, oh, look, I really hope you like your room. So I went up to the room, and normally World Vision rooms are pretty basic. Well, I walked into this presidential suite. I'd never seen anything quite like it. And I thought, oh, no, she's given me the wrong room. And to be honest, I was desperate to go to the toilet. And I thought, I better not do this. She's going to ring me in a couple of minutes. I'll have to come out and all this stuff, and then she'll be in trouble. So this is all going through my mind, thinking, she'll ring. So I sat there on the end of the bed, looking at this lovely room, corner suite, thinking, oh, well. And sure enough, the phone rang. And it was her, the receptionist. So I picked up the phone and I said to her, look, it's all right, it's all right. I know it's the wrong room. I'll come down. I haven't used to it. And all this kind of stuff. I'll give you back the key and stuff like that. She said, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I have upgraded you. I said, oh, really? She said, yeah, I've upgraded you. I said, well, that's really nice, but why? And she said, well, let me tell you my story. She said, I was a sponsored child many years ago. She said, what happened was that they built a school. And I was actually one of those kids that was sponsored. I got to go to that school. I learned English. It meant I could get a job. I now have two children. And the thing was, she talked about it, and I said, well, this is fantastic. And she said, yeah, what I hope to become, I want to become the assistant manager here of this hotel. Now, that was her aspiration. Now, what was so wonderful about that story is poverty in her life was eliminated in one generation. Her children will not need to be sponsored. She has seen education. Her kids will go to school. So believe me, we have the lilies of this world, but it is possible to do something for Lily within a generation so that we can have somebody working in a hotel in Dar es Salaam who upgrades the World Vision worker because actually it's transformed her life and will transfer her children's lives. So my message to you is not one, I hope, of guilt, but one of the extraordinary opportunity and the extraordinary hope. Imagine this community as a community that is known for being seen and heard standing for the poor in this society and through the globe. That is the story of Lazarus, the one whom God provides, and the rich man. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we live in extraordinary prosperity. Even though we wrestle with living in a consumerist society, even though we wrestle with mortgages and school fees, and all those kind of things. We know that compared to 90% of this world, we are the rich. Father, help us, give us hope, give us encouragement to live responsibly so that we are seen and heard, so that you are seen and heard. Amen. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shore Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.